Hello and welcome to this episode of the Halftime Orange podcast with me, Brenton Webber. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Will Lawrenson from Monkey Blocks, the founder and principal consultant. Um, Monkey Blocks are a marketing consulting and customer experience consulting company from London. Will's going to be sharing his journey, which focuses very much on the value of customer insights. And we're going to explore whether all customer insight is made equal. Like, are metrics really insightful? We're also going to be exploring some rather awful and some rather awesome experiences in the banking world that Will has experienced himself as a customer. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Will. Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to introduce you to the the very interesting and fascinating Will Lawrenson, um, a customer conversion specialist from where my silly accent's from, New Zealand, um, the UK. Um, it's wonderful to talk to you, Will. Um, how about introducing yourself to my listeners? Because um, we know each other, but they don't. And I'd love to hear, you know, who you are, where you've come from, how you've got to where you, you are now, and what you do, and what values um, you bring in what you do for your clients. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So I'm a kind of customer conversion consultant, customer experience consultant. Um, and it, it kind of, it's kind of come about through over nine years. I've, I've eventually got to where I am now. Um, but it's all kind of been one long link journey. Um, and it all started off in startups. And so I, I had several roles that were kind of, uh, I was going to say all-purpose marketing. I suppose that makes sense. Like an all-purpose marketer, um, that cent- kind of central person who oversees all the channels, uh, you know, manages relationships with agencies, freelancers, in-house people doing PPC and all that. Um, the marketing direction. The marketing yeah, direction. yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, focusing on, on budgets and things as well. Um, and in startups, I was the experience I had was that these companies would say, "We've got the product built." So now we just need to spend money, drive traffic to it, get the sales. Excellent. Uh, sounds great, doesn't it? Um, and then obviously you, you would have some emails set up to kind of onboard people, convert people, retain people. Super simple. Um, what, I, what I very quickly found out is obviously it doesn't work like that. Um, the product is never, never right. Uh, I mean, it, it is literally never right. You can always optimize it. But especially for a startup in the early days, it's just never anywhere near what your customers really want. Um, and so I found myself more and more moving into that product side, working with the product teams and saying, like, from a marketing point of view, this is what the data is showing. This is what our customers are telling us. This is what we need to be building. So customer so, insight driving product change and product yeah. development. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a Great. lot of that. So Great. E- either looking at our customer database, a customer data platform, and kind of, you know, kind of dreaming up little segments and things and trying to work out what people do- are doing. So I'd set up filters in the database to say, uh, find all the people who have taken this action. What do they look like? And all the people who have taken this action, what do they look like? And if they've taken this action, but specifically not this action, that sort of thing. And then saying, well, actually what we can see is, 
this behavior is happening, which is not great and it's not what we want. Or people aren't using this feature how we how we wanted them to and how we anticipated it. So trying to feed that back to the the product team who always have this long roadmap of of nice new features they want to build. Um, and after a, a couple of couple of different startups doing that, um, including one one that was owned by Europe Car, so um, you know quite well backed um, big industry, I moved into online game online gambling um, in the UK. I was head of conversion there for a couple of years, um, doing a mix of kind of CRM stuff. So targeting those people who have signed up and never actually deposited or played, but then also working on the on-site experience with sign up and deposit. So I kind of owned that entire conversion piece for for brand new customers. Um, a lot of learnings in that role. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, ridiculous stuff. The gaming industry is uh, is very interesting. Um, and when you've gone from very scrappy, uh, bending the rules slightly, maybe going into some grey areas startups, and you go to one of the most regulated industries, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a shock to the system. And with, uh, with behavioural um, science deep at its core as well, and a real understanding of human behaviour. I yeah, and, and, and that actually makes it worse because all the stuff that I wanted to do, like I knew how to tap into these emotions and things, and then I kept getting told I can't do it because it's not it's not compliant. You're not allowed to, you know, you're not allowed to really use um, t- uh, like timers <laughs> and urgency because you, you, you can do it to a certain degree. You can say, if it's the third email, you can say, all right, you've now only got one day left to claim this offer, but you wouldn't be able to send a a one-off 24-hour offer because um, it would be deemed too uh, too pushy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but so I, I left there um, last year. By the way, it sounds sounds like we've we've got a lot to be thankful for regulations. <laughs> oh um, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I mean, you know, most of it most of it's not bad stuff. Like I, I, the marketing that I was trying to do wasn't dodgy stuff or anything no but it's no just when, when when you combine it with the, the fact that it is gambling it's an addiction it does cause problems yeah uh, you have to you have to control it a bit because sometimes and, and marketers are guilty of this we kind of lose um lose touch with our customer base and and kind of just think about our kpis and and achieving those and and the, and the, the little marketing tricks and things they just um, become and, numbers, don't they? They just become uh, yeah, a resource. It, it is very easy to start thinking like that, um, particularly when you're just thinking about a new tactic or something. You know, you might be really good at thinking about customers as, as people, but then you come across this one tactic or you have this idea and you get really, really super stuck into it. And that's when you kind of lose that customer focus. Um, and, yeah, you could potentially... Do you yeah, mean like something Facebook, something. for instance? <laughs> that, uh, yeah. Really? <laughs> it's just the conversations. We, we released a podcast with a guy called Matt Bruce in um, Canada. Um, he's, he's in the US. He's a Canadian. And um, we really explored the, yeah, it sounds like regulation would be really good for social media companies. If if really what, I mean, they the, the gambling industry is, has been stopped from hijacking our dopamine reward systems by those regulators because it's dangerous, right? It creates addictions. Um, it would seem like there's a lot of parallels there with with Facebook, um, for, for example, amongst others. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's quite the same. Um, you know, there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult on social media because there's the idea of like freedom of speech and stuff. And then, you know, how responsible are they for controlling content? And if it's, and then even with some stuff that is, I guess, like fake news and borderline illegal, who who actually makes the decision on on where you draw the draw the line with each individual piece of content? And that's totally. That's and I'm I'm probably not talking about that sort of regulation. I'm probably t- talking more around the under how they internally use behavioural sciences to game people's dopamine thing and 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 some of the less less ethical ways like I've interesting case in point happened this week I've just started playing golf again which sounds very boring and um no, love it middle class. I really it's been it's been a game changer for me because I've been really inactive physically while starting up half-time orange and now I get four hours of exercise once a week usually I go down the driving range half an hour for lunch once a week and my productivity and everything has gone through the roof now I've never looked at Facebook I've never looked at anything golf related on Facebook because I tend to only use Facebook now for family connections. Um, but my wife has started to get golf ads and it just feels really creepy. And, and to be honest, a little bit ethically wrong. Um, uh, we had, uh, with my flatmate, I had, we had exactly that experience. Um, we were talking about beers the other day um, I can't remember why, really. I think we were just discussing whether we want to get some. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think we, yeah, we, I think we were kind of talking about what sort of beers we like and um, and what's good from from the two shops near us. And my flatmate happened to say, the one he doesn't get, the one he thinks is really overrated, is Hop House. I think it's Hop House eighteen. I think that's the full name. Um, he says it's overrated. Doesn't like it. It's, it's trying to be something like almost like a craft beer but it's not blah 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 he's he's never searched for it he's never mentioned anything about it online or on whatsapp or anything like that and then literally within about half an hour he was seeing hop house ads on facebook or on google or in general um bit of both i think bit of both yes yeah, that sort of thing you you're kind of like what has picked that up i mean i know they say facebook's always listing like once it's got access to your microphone and your and your and your phone, it just sits there always listening. Well, it certainly um, knows when me and the missus have had an argument. We, we you can see this big increase in um, emotional pap that kind of comes across both of our feedback to kind of keep playing us and keep us. Have you seen Have you seen that um, the documentary, The Social Dilemma? Out of interest, I haven't actually. I've heard quite some, oh, some good things about it, so I think I need to you watch must. it. Yeah, you must because um, I think it might be quite. I don't know, relevant to me is the right <laughs> way of putting it. But, yeah, you know, I find it really interesting, I think. Yeah, hey, um, let's get back on track. Didn't mean to go yeah, off on such a yeah. tangent. So, yeah, from from, that, from the gaming industry. Yeah, I'll, I'll finish up really quickly. Um, yeah, so finished, finished there last year, moved into consulting and thought, I, I want to do this full time. I want to work with businesses, help build better customer experiences so that they, when they're spending all this money on traffic, they're actually converting people, uh, activating them properly, engaging them and retaining them and, and getting better lifetime values from them. Because even in, in the gambling industry, you know, they, they make so much money per player, but they still 
they're still happy with you know CPAs of 150 200 pounds yeah right they're still in that transactional mindset that and, sales and they, is the key to growth instead of retention yeah and there's still you know they do put a big focus on retention but it but it is literally um advertising to bring people in and and like email sms and and direct mail to keep people there's like there's almost nothing in between and and some of it you know they can't deal with because a lot of the games are owned by third party suppliers so they can't touch the actual game themselves you know the slot machine or whatever um but there's so much they could be doing on their uh on the websites outside of the games to to engage people better and and they just don't because they they generally hit their targets of like you know a 30% CPA to to lifetime value ratio and as long as they're doing that or within about 5-10% they're kind of happy so yeah I, I left there last year went out to do this this full-time um, so now I work with mainly e-commerce brands um, and just the the odd the odd other company so like some subscriptions and things and, and yeah I, I help them with conversion rates um customer activation activities retention um any any kind of touch points someone could have with a brand outside of their advertising basically right it's it's funny i think i think advertising is also a really key part of the customer experience yeah absolutely um we we've we've had some success by taking insights from customer and non-customer segments to see where the, the gap in perceptions are where the different you know the, the the various places where expectations are built and one of the key one of the key places that well the only one of the own one of the one of the most easily controlled aspects of where expectations about a brand can come from is certainly what we say in our advertising and what i see with quite a few brands is this promise of amazing customer service in their advertising, or their acquisition process. And then as soon as a transaction has happened, there's just like this jarring moment of realization that, yeah, it was just an ad. <laughs> you know, kind of like that Big Mac moment where, I mean, Big Macs take the, taste delicious, um, I think, where, uh, at the right time, of <laughs> the, you know, in the right situation. But they never look like they do on the, um, on the ad. <laughs> and occasionally yeah, no, exactly. when they're really badly made when they're really badly stacked it is a it is a jarring moment right well one of the things that that bothers me a little bit that brands do is after that transaction within it's normally but within about a week yeah three yeah three let's say three to ten days after the purchase you get an email asking you to review your purchase but there's no <laughs> there's there's no email to ask you how your purchase was or you know how the product was how was your experience is everything okay do you need any support anything like that it's literally that template email from trustpilot or wherever asking you to leave a review so it's it's like they don't really care whether you've had a good or bad experience they're hoping you've had a good experience and assuming that by having delivered the product to you you're going to be happy um and and some of them are willing to risk that you know if you've had a bad experience you'll you'll post a bad review but they'll reply to it and and try and make it seem like they've fixed it. Yeah, it feels like you're trying to bait me here, Will, because you know that I'm quite opinionated about this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think I do think that the way that we I think you're right in a um, 
the way I see it is that so many of our surveys are so company centric. You know, there's this there's this belief that a customer journey starts with an in, the first interaction with the company and ends with the last interaction with the company. Whereas really the customer experience is from when people start thinking about fulfilling an outcome to when they've actually delivered an outcome. For instance, if I buy a new hybrid for my, you know, for, for my new passion and um, I'm asked when I buy the, the club whether or not I would recommend this club to a friend or colleague, you know, it's like, well, how do I know? I've, I've probably got six weeks before I kind of get used to the club. Um, yeah, you, the transaction was good, but you know, yeah, a bit more about me, please. <laughs> you know, if we're if we're going, I don't. I also don't mind it as much if it's if it's worded in a human way and people show an absolute interest about connecting with me authentically. But when it's in that same kind of research, mustn't put any bias writing into it. Sometimes it kind of, especially when they're when they're. It's, it's, it's why we've we've now got in the industry that we have to make these surveys as short as possible because it's kind of a nut. We kind of know that the majority of them aren't really that enjoyable to the rather disengaging way of measuring engagement in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah, surveys are surveys are boring. Leaving reviews are generally quite boring. Um, yeah, but, it's just but not if just you have just not if you've just got your first hole in one. Then you want to leave a review. That is a real passionate, advocacy-driven review. Like we're being, yeah. we're, like we don't cre- we don't become loyal to somebody, and we're being asked to pretty much say, would we recommend a product or service to somebody after, before we've even fulfilled the outcome that we have gone into that transaction for? It just seems it's like if I. If I if I took you out if I get over to the UK um, you know post COVID and we go out for a curry and as soon as we finish the curry I say have you got anyone else that you can introduce me to to go and um, have a curry it's like well on a sec we've only just had one curry <laughs> um, it just it would to me it would just seem a little bit grabby if if somebody was to to do that and I think a lot of companies they don't realise how they're perceived about being um, we're working with somebody at the moment. We've recommended that they, you know, do a, a good old A/B test so we can deliver an immediate return on experience investment. Which is, all right, half the people you ask for a recommendation when you're currently doing it, and the other people, uh, another group, you ask, you know, when you've established that they are happy with the outcome, and see what quality of referral you get from that, and how many more. Because I. I don't think I would recommend my best friend in any situation where for a product or service that I didn't know whether or not it was the right product or service yet. I probably, you know, somebody who I hardly knew if I felt generous because it was an okay experience, but I'm not going to risk that relationship by recommending something that they might waste some time and money on. Yeah, exactly. Like referrals definitely should come at a later stage. Um, I, did I was a fan of what I've now found out is called gatewaying uh, reviews, mm-hmm. which is where uh, do you know what it is? Well, no, I'll I, haven't, it anyway I haven't heard of it. I may know um, it in another guy's. You, yeah, please. You basically it. you send an email to your customer and you say and you basically say, "Are you happy with your purchase? Yes or no." If they click yes, you send them to the review platform. If they click no, you send them to a feedback form. 
Yeah, yeah, I do know that. So yeah. I I was genuinely doing it for 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 good reasons. You know, if, mm, if someone was unhappy, I wanted the feedback. Um but but it's viewed in the in the kind of review industry, I guess, as a a way of of, of kind of hiding, you know, trying to trying to keep keep those people from giving those bad reviews. Yes. And and, and yeah. ensuring that you only get good reviews, which is obviously one of the plus sides that was on my mind and knew about that. But it was generally so that, you know, instead of this person leaving a bad review and that's the first we find out about it, I want them to contact us, or, you know, feed, give us some feedback and we can contact them and say, Definitely. really sorry about that, let us fix it. I mean, you have to have a line of communication open for complaints because we know, for one, we, we know that we're unsolicited we're only going to hear from about four percent of our complaining customers only 96 percent will just quietly go away and just grumble and probably grumble to about five other people but the ones that it, they're also mistakes are, are such a golden opportunity for companies to build further loyalty like we all none of us there's this there's this ridiculous and it's a quote that i used in my early cx days because it sounds cool um, it sounds worrying and it sounds like there's a burning platform that people need to really focus on. Um, it's that 34%, I think it is, and I think it's a Gartner um, number, 34% of people will walk away from a brand or product that they love after one bad experience. Now, I I think it's missing a bit of context. There. I think it's they'll walk away, we'll walk away, a third of people will walk away from a badly handled bad experience. But we love we love experience, bad experiences that are handled superbly. People go up in our estimations. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you had a bad experience with a brand you love, you're going to reach out to them because you, you like that brand. You're going to let them know that, that yeah. something went wrong or, or whatever. If they handle that wrong badly, that's when you, you, yeah, you, you're going to disappear and say, well, I'm done with you. Um, that's a really interesting layer, by with, the way. What you've with brands yeah with brands that you don't love it might be that just that one bad experience is the one that makes you go ah, i can't be bothered with this like i'm not going to engage with this brand anymore but a brand that you love you're going to give them a chance and if they handle that chance badly that's when you'll i think people will drop off there's also the gray area that people won't just leave they, they might start thinking of leaving because like a utilities supply I had an interesting tete-a-tete -tete with a with a with a telecommunications CX specialist um here and um yeah they they certainly oh, how do I, you know I probably shouldn't go there I'm not going to go there well I will I will I've got an example which is going to be uh, okay I imagine maybe similar um <laughs> yes, please, I, I got in touch with with a bank um, a, U a UK bank the other day because uh, I couldn't remember what my PIN number for my card was and I needed my PIN to be able to uh, transfer funds from my account um, because it's still quite old school. Um, so I, I got in touch with them. So I logged into my account online, got on chat with them from my logged in page and the person said, because this is we need to access your account and view sensitive data we need to, this chat to be secure so we need you to log back out log back in again and in, from your account section open the chat so i thought all right that's a bit weird but okay i'll do it did it came back in 
um, shunted to the back of the queue, had to wait 30 minutes to get back on chat. That person then said, I'm really sorry, but as this is sensitive data, we need you to log out, log back in again, and from your account page, do it. And I thought, I've literally just done that because you've just told me to. The person said, well, it's not secure. There's nothing they can do. You've got to do it. Um, so I followed I followed their instructions to a T that time, and that's when it worked. And it turned out I had to open the chat from one specific page within my account to be able to get a secure link. Um, so I managed to request the PIN, but I was so annoyed that literally as soon as I put the phone down, I went to my, my other account, Monzo, which I've had a personal account with, and within five minutes, I'd had been approved for a business account, and I'd set up the switch from this other bank account. Um, and then the day that I received my business card with Monzo was the same day that I received not only my PIN number from this other bank, but also the letter from them uh, confirming that they'd received this switch uh, switch account uh, request and they were going to close my account. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, yeah. It, just, it was just an unbelievably shocking experience with customer service just to request a PIN number. I mean, but you can't, you can't just leave like a, a drop of a hat because changing banks is quite a difficult thing to do. No, no, that's the thing. Here, with a lot of banks, it's super easy because oh, the banks are supposed to sign. I, I think every actual bank, so there, there are other ones which are, they're not quite full banks yet, so they don't have to do it. But I think every actual bank here in the UK has to be signed up to the uh, like quick switch or easy switch service. So you can go to another bank, request an account. When you have that account, you can say, here are my bank details for this other bank. I want you to cl- to switch over all my direct debits, all my automatic payments, uh, pull my balance over and close that account. Um, do you don't have to people, do anything. Do the people who are responsible for designing banks' customer experience journeys know about know about this because that would seem like a an imperative reason um but also to, I, I to actually I deliver a great customer experience because if you can move that quickly but why i don't understand why i had to be on customer service in the first place why isn't there a button in my account which i've, I've logged into securely because i've used uh you know what two login codes and i've used my um what card reader to put another code in so I'm very securely logged in. Why isn't there a button that just says request pin? And it, and it goes to the to the address that is you're registered with. That'd be super easy, wouldn't it? It would be. And and you would think fairly um, implementable, if that's yeah. a word. Easily. And, and they would have saved themselves, all right, fair enough, a pretty small customer. But I, how many other people have had that experience as well? And have literally just picked up their phone and within five minutes managed to switch bank account. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. See, I think where I, I am going to go there with the telecommunication company because it's it's slightly different in in context. Because I, for one, I don't want to go through the hassle of um, moving telecommunications companies because I don't necessarily think one is better than the other at the moment. So I may be having bad experiences and all and instead of losing me as a customer you've lost me as a, a, a as a as a um as a loyal customer you've just moved me back into a transactional mindset which means that other companies advertising starts to 
become more obvious. I start to, you know, it's like that, you know, um, you, when you decide to buy a Volvo, you, you see all Volvos on the road, for instance, those sorts of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with my mobile contract. So if I see a mobile advert, it just doesn't register with what me. What is over you, right? But if you've just had a crappy um, experience, like it may well be that you decide a year later, it could just be the start. And people are measuring these transactions, like are you going to leave or are you not going to leave? In actual fact, like what's – th- do you think we made a mistake getting away from things like brand sentiment and into MPS? Like I, I think MPS is a valid – and before I'm, I know that I can be really anti-MPS. I think it's a valid metric in the same way that, um, you know, your, your fuel gauge um, or your, you know, your, your oil gauge on your car is an important metric. But there's a, there's a whole load of other things. And it's probably more similar to uh, pulse, you know. It's, it's a very high-level health check but it doesn't give you any context into you could be living a really bad unhealthy life leading to all sorts of complications but your pulse could be fine when you take it or you know it might be or you could be smoking a cigarette while you while you take your pulse for instance um but that's why even even with mps you've got to look at all the feedback and all the scores because you could look at your average and go well we're averaging 75 or however you measure it um but if you're not looking at the comments it's it's pointless, isn't it? Because even even the comments the comments on a ten can still be an area for improvement. Because you'll get someone saying, "Absolutely love the brand, love what you're doing." However, I'd like to see more of this, and it it won't be a major thing because of the scored because they've scored you a ten. But there'll still be some feedback there, and then obviously the ones who are rating you low, you absolutely want to get that feedback in. But I think too many businesses just. Just sit there. Uh, to be fair, I haven't I, I haven't come across NPS for quite a while. Um, I haven't had many people mention it. Um, I haven't used it for a little while. Yeah, it's a little bit. I don't yeah, think I, it's, I just I don't, don't think use it's been I taken I up by founders, is it? I'm not hearing it with new businesses. Like it tends to be the the big corps have um, really drank the Kool-Aid about it, I think. And I mean that's why I think it's part of the reason why Forrester predicted that so many of our industry's jobs could be at, at fault because there's a lot of people who are struggling to show an ROI um, link to their voice of customer platform. And yet I've got one, which is amazing, this this ROI. So there was a – and I, I can I'll tell you what, Phil, we'll, my, Phil's my producer. We'll put it in the notes. It's a, I think it's a Spanish company. Um and if I've got the play, I've got the name wrong or the country wrong, then I'm sorry. Um, but we'll put the link in the notes. And it was a, it was looking at companies. You know, it's a, it's a large industry with a lot of money being spent. And apparently, only 11% of companies are using insights from their voice of customer through their throughout their company. That means that 89% of voice of customer platforms are really only delivering numbers and metrics. They're not delivering customer insights. Now, the 11% of companies that do use it to gather insights, they're growing at 10 times the rate of their competitors in the same fields using voice of customers that are not using it to mine for for insights. So there's... The, the value is in the insights. The value is in the voice, right? Because the number isn't a voice. Back, back at the gaming company, we, we had a team. Uh, I, think it was custom, I think it was literally called Customer Insights. And I, I remember they gave us a presentation at some point 
which just gave us a load of scores. It was, uh, you know, some sentiment. It was some things around um, uh, like prompted and unprompted uh, recognition and things um, and various other scores. And I mean, there was no, there's no actions from it. It's not a, there's no, you know, there's no analysis. It's a report. Yeah, and it's a, it's KPIs. Um, it's checking. It's it's health checks, really. Yeah, I think the I think the number is uh, I can't remember what the book's called either. Is it Analytics two point or something? Web Analytics two point I think. Um, he says, you know, for every I think it's for every dollar you spend on reporting, you should be spending nine on an analysis of it, because that's actually where you get you get the results, you get the actions from. Um, you know, it, anyone can go into Google Analytics and just pull a report from it and say, you know, this month we got X number of visits and X number of conversions uh, and we had a bounce rate of this. And on this campaign, we had, you know, these results. And then everyone sits there and goes, all right, and? Like, so what? <laughs> yeah. what, what what's this telling us? What, what, what do we do with this information? Um, it's why I got, I uh, probably shouldn't <laughs> moan about this too much, but yeah, in, uh, in some of the bigger companies I've been in, um, yeah, we, we'd have these weekly marketing meetings or marketing manager meetings, and so many teams just reported their numbers. It's like, this this is the CPA we got this week or last week. These are the number of conversions. This is our CPA to, to lifetime value ratio. And it's just, it's the most dull, boring meeting you can possibly be in because it's, it, it's just numbers. There's nothing interesting about it at all until someone says, we had a problem here. The CPA on this campaign shot up this week. We think it's due to this, which also might affect these other campaigns in other teams. So everyone be aware that this is happening. That's the sort of stuff that is valuable. But you just you just never get it. It's just there's so much just, just literally got, just reporting. I've got a recommendation for customer insight teams everywhere. If you want to be really effective, get yourself a seat at the board table as the customer. You know, like literally you're there to be able to put the customer's perspective on decisions. It was a a recommendation that was given to me by James Dodkins, um, big CX dude in in the UK. Um, And um, he called it the customer chair. And you can do this in any organization without any investment. You can, customer chair 1.0 is where you just put a chair there and you pretend there's a customer there so that you know that the decisions that you're making will be put past a customer. It changes the way that you're thinking. If you think about how would a customer feel about the decision we're about to make. The 2.0 version is where you put everybody, everybody takes a turn in the chair from meeting to meeting, which gives everybody the ability to, you know, Make that change. We spend so much time thinking as businesses instead of thinking as customers. And there's a lot of power in that. And if you've got a customer insight team, get them in that chair in every single meeting. Get them um, using the insights to be able to, because if they can't answer as a customer, if they don't have any insights into how a customer might be thinking or about the brand, it it, it might make them feel like, well, what value is this number (laughs) as well? Like what 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 am I able to put into a meeting with customer insights to drive change to 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 you know lead lead 
direction in some ways because that's where as you've said in all of your experience the more insights that you have the more you can design a product or a journey that actually matches what the customer wants instead of guessing what they might want yeah absolutely uh, i mean I, I think the example of the chair is just something that will never catch on um, <laughs> it's so it, easy it, though it, no investment it, it is quite an interesting idea but you, it, it's such a it's such a weird idea that you just never get people to do it. Can um, I say where um, it, I'm, I'm not going to, it's not fair on James. I mean, James has worked at some of the biggest companies. So these are all lessons that he's learned from places like Amazon and Disney. So the best companies in the world are putting these silly ideas into practice with no cost. And yeah, it's just, but, but it's got to be, it's got to be pushed through. And, and it's, it's just a handful of companies. Most companies out there w- would laugh at it. I've, you know, because I've, I've been there, I've done that as well. And I think I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I think it's a great idea. My experience is you 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 just get laughed out of the room if you suggested that because the the, the non marketing people are just close minded to it. Um, Probably got quite a few of, people laughing behind my back. Then felt well, <laughs> and, and kind of linked to what you were saying. Um, I, I think marketing deserves more respect in the boardroom because I, I think marketing is just seen as this functional department that is just responsible for bringing people to a website. Uh, well, that's it. Bringing people to a website, basically, that that's marketing's job, as seen by a lot of people. Do you think they're just seen as the funnel by a lot of people, like helping yeah, the funnel, filling at the, the the top of the funnel, trying to get as much water in that funnel much. as possible? Like the, uh, oh, I know it's not quite attributed this way, but it's almost like the product team is actually responsible for the revenue because they've built the website. The website's the one that converts people marketing's job is just to bring people to the website i think that's it's i'm exaggerating it a bit but um that's it's kind of how i've seen it you know well like i told you at those startups you know the the product gets built and then marketing gets told here's here's your money go and drive traffic here are your targets we're expecting you to hit them and then you turn around and say well we you know we can spend this money we can drive the traffic but we're not going to hit the targets because the product's not good enough but you kind of you know, it, it takes a while. I mean, at one company, we must have spent about a million quid, just in the million pounds, just in the UK, um, on advertising because we were told, and we had to hit our budgets as well. That was the worst thing about it. Um, we, we had to spend the money. So we, we just kept running ads and we were getting people in at a decent rate, but they just weren't retaining because the product didn't do the job. And it took about a year before the board kind of finally went, oh shit, we haven't, we haven't hit the targets. So we're not going to get the investment. What's going on here? Yeah. And then we're there going, yeah, we've been we've been saying this for at least 10 months, 10 of the last 12 months. It's not working because the product's not doing its job. If you'd listen to marketing. It's it's siloing. It's yeah. siloing of purpose, siloing of thinking, siloing of information, of data. And it creates real jar. It creates jar moments in the company experience as well. Like, no one... The financial experience is f- fully linked to the customer experience of a company, and to the, the and the and marketing, of course, is so vital within that. As is as is the product. Like that's it. I think I think we sometimes all specialists. You know, we're in a world of specialists where everybody has to kind of. We, we, our departments have to be seen as a specialist in our department, and to to kind of encroach into another sphere of influence 
you know, advertising people get quite upset. Some advertising people get quite upset when customer experience people say that they have some value, valuable insights that, that could be used. Not all, obviously, um, but there is that. Well, we do what we do. Like, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to hear from people if the, if they know of many ad agencies that have, have ever said, you know, you've you're probably spending enough of your budget on advertising now. I think we should put some money into customer service because the insights are pointing to that direction. Well, yeah, they, they don't see that information. That's the problem because they're siloed. Um, they, they don't have a clue what's going on with customer service and a lot of the time they don't care because their job again their job is to bring in the traffic and get the purchases and like for e-commerce for example um that they, they have to drive traffic get the purchase they don't have to care whether those people have a good experience and come back later because they can actually drive that person back at a later date with another advert if they, if, if that opportunity comes up um, they, they don't care if this person gets, you know, super engaged and, uh, you know, and starts to kind of build that brand loyalty. Um, th their job is acquire people at this at this cost mm. and at this uh, this ROI. Basically, I, t I tell you what, we wouldn't the Americans wouldn't have got to the moon without a single unsiloed purpose. It just holds companies and organizations back, that siloing. And it, it holds growth back, in my opinion. I, d I just don't think it's fair on shareholders that when we know that business can be run so much better that more companies aren't, aren't, aren't embracing that aspect. Like, there's so many. They, we know when we're siloed. We've, we've been surveying. Um, we've, we've surveyed over 100 companies um, with our consulting over the last week. And then you ask them, are you matrixed? Are you siloed? Um, everybody knows whether they're siloed or matrixed. But, and we all know that that siloing creates issues. So why, no, why, I see, why are we I not don't, breaking that down? I don't quite agree with you there. I don't think many companies know they're siloed. I think they believe they're matrixed um, because they, they set up these, they have the, you know, they have the manager meetings for each department and they have, those level of conversations but the people doing the jobs on a day-to-day -day basis they're not speaking to each other they're not getting any feedback from the other teams so the the actual people doing the jobs are the ones siloed and then you've got that step up in the hierarchy to the managers and the managers might not be siloed but then it doesn't yes the, yes, the yes. Feedback doesn't move it's around. that it's that um adam smith's division of labor the the old hierarchy of um, division so that that top down so the CEO shouldn't really be siloed from anything the thing is everybody down below the you know the monkeys on the lower um, trees which I've been one for most of my career well I always knew whether an organization was siloed or not people inside the there are people inside the organization that are very aware of the siloing whether or not the the entity itself or whether it's discussed by anybody it would be interesting to find out I don't know how you'd survey that but I, my guess would be, just based off my experience, the people lower down the ladder are the ones who recognise that it's siloed. Yes, the people exactly. at the top don't realise. Yes. Because the, the people at the top, do their, their job is to just have conversations with each other, basically, um, <laughs> and obviously run their teams. But yeah, but yeah I, I think, yeah, at the top, they, they probably are, they themselves are probably matrixed. 
Um, but what they don't realise is that the, the company as a whole and their departments are siloed. Yeah, and I'm not sure that their purposes are matrixed. I think their purposes are siloed as well. Um, yeah, probably. Hey, uh, but we're gosh, I could talk to you for hours. I, I'm, I'm gonna. Ho- I hope that we can have another conversation at some point because I know that um, you're you're you haven't got a lot, a lot more time. Before you, you're so gracious. You talked about what you do, but um, monkey blocks. I mean, such an interesting name. Before we go, how where where did monkey blocks come from? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it is completely random. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> Good. <laughs> it actually came out of a pub session, um, literally just brains, brainstorming um, business business name ideas uh, over a few beers. Uh, and and it kind of, you know, I was talking about, I, I honestly couldn't tell you where the monkey comes from. I, I just, <laughs> that, was bit, that was a bit random. But the, the blocks bit, you know, it's the, I've always thought that, you know, the product side of it is the building blocks of of a business uh, and, and the marketing side of it. If you, you know, if you don't keep working on that and if you don't get that right, then it doesn't matter if your the actual products you sell are, are amazing. It doesn't matter if your customer service is amazing. It doesn't matter if your advertising is amazing. If people have a terrible experience on your website, you know, you're only going to capture those people who are willing to put themselves through it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's what is it? 53% of people, something like that. Oh, God, these where these numbers come from um, won't ever return to a website that they've had a bad experience with. Like it's just, you know, there's too many websites. Life's too short. You know, once you've been somewhere where you've had a bad experience, it's like, I'm never. Yeah, I would have thought it'd be more, to be honest. I know it's something like, I know it costs like seven or eight times more to get somebody there again. That's when I was working in publishing, that was the number that we worked with. It was like, if we, if somebody disliked it, then it would take $7 more than it took them this time to get them back to try the site. So they didn't even talk about people that would never go there. So I I wouldn't have any other benchmark to go against. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the common one is 15 to 20 times more expensive to acquire right. a new customer than it is to retain one. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. Yeah, another That's one. What, I, what I kind of talk about, what I aim for. Yeah. Once you've got that traffic in, keep it so that you're not having to acquire new customers to just to keep going. Before I let you go, a question that I like to ask everybody. Um, what's the best customer experience that you can remember recently? Because we're all customers, right? So I'm interested from your experience as a customer with your customer hat on. Oh, what have I had recently? I haven't been buying much because of lockdown. I don't, <laughs> you know. Oh, well, um, do you know what? It's probably the bank experience with the bank that I switched to. The fact right. that I could, because so actually, I, what I didn't mention is um, I, I had two business bank accounts. I had one with with one that's a. Um, it's a mobile first or a mobile only bank. It's relatively new in the UK. It's aimed at small businesses, um, but they're not a full bank yet, which means they can't do direct debits. And the reason, so the reason I signed up with this other bank is um, I have to file VAT returns every quarter. And in order to get paid the VAT without having to be sent a check, I have to have a bank account that accepts direct debits. So I signed up for this other bank. Um, and then I realized, in, in fact, Monzo put a, they had like a notification within my app. So I opened it up. I was looking at my um, like transactions list 
and at the top it said check out Monzo for business so I did and I was able to close one of my bank accounts as, as basically as part of that opening account process and then I've just had to go do do the other one manually because again they're not a full bank account so they're not part of this switch service so yeah one of the best kind of in-app experiences is just selling up a bank account in five minutes and having it switch over my direct debits from another account and close that account. Uh, I haven't had to speak to anyone. I haven't had to go through any unnecessary verification or anything. Uh, yeah, I mean, they just made it super easy. That's excellent to hear because it should be. Um, I've, I'm not, I have no idea how easy it is. My perception in where I am is that it would be fairly difficult to do that um, in New Zealand. Um, although I, I think there are parts of our banking that, and to my banking friends, there's parts of our banking experience that is far better than anywhere else that I've been as well. Um, it's an interesting industry under a bit of pressure from the, the um, growth of blockchain and crypto. So we'll yep. s- they're going to have to up their game, that's for sure. And it just shows it's probably one of the best experiences because it was also came off the back of a terrible banking experience that you told us about before. So your expectation levels were really low. So something that's really great all of a sudden gives you an even bigger hit of satisfaction. Absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. Hey, mate, um, I know you've got to go. And um, before you do go, um, how should people um, reach out to you? Who would you love to hear from? Um, let us know. And, and we'll put anything um, that you'd like us to share with, um, with with our listeners in the show notes. So please send those in. But, yeah, please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and why they should, why you'd like um, to. Yeah, I mean, anyone who wants to work with me, I, I mainly work with kind of e-commerce and, and consumer subscription businesses. Um, but it's really any, any website where someone can – sign up, create an account, buy something, fill in a form, whatever, anything where there's, there's a goal to do on the website. You don't have to speak to a salesperson to, you know, to, to achieve your goal. Um, best way to speak to me is just connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, Will Lawrenson, I've got a blue, quite a bright blue background behind my head in my, my profile picture. Um, I'm quite, well, I'm very active on there. I post, post content daily. Um, and and yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to connect with anyone. Really, always, always up for a chat. Great. Well, you, you were you were gracious enough to connect with me, and Will, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been t- far too short. I could have talked. We could have talked about all sorts of things. I mean, I think we've only just touched the surface. So yeah. hopefully, we get to. I'll, I'll look forward to the next time that we we get get to catch up. You have a wonderful day, and thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening today. I hope you got some really solid value out of the conversation. If you did get some value, please consider subscribing using any of the links below. We are on all major podcast platforms. And feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or via our website, www.halftimeorange.co.nz. Look forward to speaking with you next time.